This morning we're continuing our series in Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and we'll look at that whole chapter. And uh, we're really seeing the downfall of King Saul, but it wasn't always that way. At first he looked really promising, right? Well, this, is, this is a phenomenon that we're familiar with. We've seen um, in, in recent years, both in, in the secular world and in, in the church itself, not our church, but in the church at large itself, that we see this pattern happen where someone looks really promising, they look good, they're, they're doing well, and then all of a sudden they have this downfall. And that, that's what happens with Saul here, because before this, he looked really promising, right? He was the tallest and handsomest man in Israel, yet he was very humble. He had, after his private anointing by Samuel, he had this spiritual transformation that ended with him prophesying. He reluctantly, even humbly, accepted the, uh, his selection by lot to be king. And, and then he proves himself in battle by defeating Nahash and the Ammonites, but then last week we saw the beginning of his downfall as he brazenly defied uh, God by making a sacrifice he was unauthorized to make. And Samuel declared that his consequence would be the end of his kingdom with his own death, meaning that his son would never be king. And so today in our passage, we're really going to see the birth of what we may call uh, Saul the Mad King, um, where he's just really off the rails we pick up where we left off last week uh, in, the begin- in the middle of this war where Saul and Jonathan and 600 soldiers are holed up in Geba while the Philistines have now fanned out in three different directions from uh, Michmash. So we'll pick up here in ch- chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Yahweh in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for Yahweh has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for Yahweh has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. 
And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned out to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So Yahweh saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Okay. There's a lot there. We got to break it down. Uh, there's a lot of some new characters as well coming into play. One being Ahijah. Ahijah um, is uh, is a pr- a priest, and it's really Saul's substitute priest, right? He's he he doesn't know what to do now because he's lost Samuel, and he really relied on Samuel, um, who was his his priest, and so now he's got to find himself a new priest. And who he ends up finding is the, the great-grandson of Eli. So if you remember that Samuel had, when he was dedicated by Hannah to the temple service, he goes and serves under the priest Eli. Uh, Eli and his two sons are, are, are priests, and they're, they're terrible. His sons in particular are corrupt, bad guys. Um, God warns Eli several times to stop it, um, and he ends up uh, not doing it. And so then... Uh, there's a day where they go to battle against the Philistines and, and both of Eli's sons die. They come back and they uh, tell him, your sons are dead. And he falls, off, uh, falls backward in his chair and, and cracks his head and, and dies. So Eli and his sons, they both die on the same day. One of his sons ha- had a wife who was, was very pregnant at the time. The stress of that causes her to go into labor. She has a son. She names him Ichabod. Right? And we see that in this uh, lineage that is given here. When he says, verse 3, Ahijah, the son of Ahitu, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of Yahweh in Shiloh. He's the son of Ahitub, the nephew of Ichabod, the grandson of Phinehas, the great-grandson of Eli. Which is uh, bad news for Ahijah. Because right? if you remember the curse that is given to Eli, um, as a result of his actions, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 31, God tells Eli, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off the str- your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Not great if, uh, if God gave your great-grandfather a curse that there will not be an old man in your house. That's not a great way to grow up with that thought in mind, but that's what is happening with Ahijah. And so he's now Saul's substitute priest. 
right? He's from this disgraced line of priests. He technically qualifies as a priest. He's got the ephod and everything. He even mentions he's wearing the ephod. He's got all the qualifications, but it's not, he's not a great substitute. The other character we see here is Jonathan. Jonathan is the firstborn son of Saul. He's the prince who will never be king, right? Because of what Saul has done, he'll never be king. But if Saul hadn't done that, he should be the next, next in line, uh, but he's not. Um, Jonathan's tired of waiting for his father to make a decision, right? He seems uh, to, to be over it. He decides to plan his own covert operation. And so what he finds is this rocky pass is like picturing a, a very narrow pass between these two cliffs that he and his armor bearer rock climb through. And he says, we can climb through here. We'll come out on the other side. There'll be another cliff in front of us, but on top of that cliff will be the Philistines. We're going to climb through. We're going to show ourselves to them um, and, and see what might happen, right? And, and his confidence comes from his faith. Notice how he refers to the Philistines. He calls them the garrison of the uncircumcised. Now, what does he mean there? Why does he call them the garrison of the uncircumcised? Right? We might think of, sometimes when we think of circumcision, we go immediately to the New Testament, and we start to think about the, the controversy in the New Testament of we have these Gentile believers coming in who's, who decide to follow this Jewish Messiah. Uh, do they have to be circumcised? That's a big question at the beginning. And so you have uncircumcised believers and circumcised believers end up deciding it doesn't matter, that they don't need to be circumcised, that there's no distinction. But that's not what's being discussed here. At this time, what Jonathan is thinking of is the fact that circumcision is the thing that symbolizes the Israelites' covenant with Yahweh. He's saying, this is what marks us as belonging to Yahweh. We belong to Yahweh. Yahweh's on our side. That's the garrison of the uncircumcised. That's the group of people that don't belong to God. They're not part of, Yahweh is not on their side. Yahweh is on our side. That's ultimately the only thing that matters, right? What we might think of to understand this even better might be to think of how else might Jonathan have referred to them, right? He could have just called them the Philistines, but if you wanted to call them what they, what they were in human terms, it's like, hey, let's go over to the, the much larger and better armed garrison, that's what they were in human terms. They had better weapons and they have more men. And in any case, Jonathan is talking about two of them going over to them. Like, let's go over and fight these guys, the two of us. Calling them the garrison of the uncircumcised shows his faith and the fact that he is focused on the one thing that matters, that God is on their side. This is why he says, nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by few. It uh, really highlights his faith and solid theology here. He knows that it's possible for God to save no matter what the odds are, no matter what the numbers are. He may even be thinking back if he knew his history, which likely he did, because this isn't that ancient history at the time. He might be thinking back to stories from the book of Judges, like Gideon and the Midianites. Gideon defeats the Midianites. He goes to war with the Midianites. You can find this in the book of Judges. Um, and, and when he goes to fight them, God tells him, your army's too big. He tells Gideon, you have too many men for me to fight with. And so he tells him, look at, at uh, Judges chapter 7, verse 4, where it says, Yahweh said to Gideon, 
The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone, any, any of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And so God whittles his army down to just 300 men. And then he uses those 300 men to defeat the Midianites. Jonathan may be thinking of that story and going, listen, it doesn't matter how many people are on our side. It doesn't matter what the human odds are. If God is on our side, then we can win. It doesn't matter. He can save with a lot of people. He can save with a few. Saving by many or by few, it doesn't matter to him. He can, he can do what he wants regardless of the odds. But he also knows and admits that that might not be what God wants. Notice how he prefaces that statement. He says, it may be that Yahweh will work with us. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder him by saving by many or by few. That's how he prefaces it. It may be. He doesn't presume to know what God will do. And this is important for us to note as well. Because we often presume to know God's will. But just because you have a good idea doesn't mean it's God's idea. Or just because you can even prove it. Maybe the math works out, right? You can even, you can prove it. You can write it all out and say, look, I can prove to you this is a good idea. Doesn't mean it's God's idea. And that's why he says, it may be. The prophet Isaiah implores us to seek God's will, not to presume it. In Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 9, he says, Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are better than ours. His ways are better than ours. So we ought to seek him. Seek to know what his will is. Because it is not, his will does not always line up with our will. right? And, and not even what we think his will ought to be. We often want to presume that we know what God will do. Let me give you an example of this in, uh, in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made by God, to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in through the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Rack your cloak around you, all, around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was, gonna, what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. 
When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Okay. So, we read passages like this, and we go like, see, this is what I'm talking about. God rescues. He saves people. And I'm in a situation, and I need rescue. And so, obviously, God will save me. Look at what he did for Peter. He can do the same thing for me if I just have enough faith and I just pray and God will rescue me just like he rescued Peter miraculously. Miraculously, he saves him out of this prison, walks him right past his guards, right through the, the gates open of their own accord. Miraculous, awesome. God can do the same thing for you. And that's true. He can do the same thing for you. But you might also be James. Did you forget about James in this story? Verse 1, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Done. You might be Peter, but you might be James. You might be James. We don't, just totally skip over James in this passage. James and Peter are essentially the same situation. Both get locked up, but James gets executed with the sword. That means that his head was chopped off. This is not good news for James. And that was also God's will to allow that to happen. God allowed that to happen, allowed James to be killed with the sword. They both needed rescue. Peter got a miraculous rescue. James didn't. And we don't get any indication that James had done anything wrong, that this was some kind of punishment for James. God miraculously rescues Peter, allows James to be killed. Our eternal salvation is secure, but salvation from earthly peril is not guaranteed. And if we have a true eternal perspective, James is better off in the story. James is better off in the story. If we have an eternal perspective, if we truly believe that going to be with Jesus and be in paradise is better if we view that correctly, James is better off in this story because he gets out and he gets to go and be in paradise with Jesus. Peter gets rescued, but then he still has a lot of suffering to come. A lot of suffering to come. And he ultimately will die the same way, just with more suffering in between. But so often we presume to know God's will. We presume that, that God will rescue, that he will save. Not always the case Jonathan has a good theology here. He says, it may be that God will work with, for us. It may be that Yahweh will work for us. Nothing can hinder him from saving with many or by few. He says that it, it doesn't matter what the odds are. If God is on our side, it may be that he's on our side. And he, he creates a situation where he can say, here's what the sign will be for us. How will we know if God is on our side? We're going to set up a situation in which we know whether God is on our side. When we come out of the rocks, they're either going to say to us, come up to us. Well, they might, they might say, stay, stay down there, stay where you are. We'll come down to you. In that case, we'll wait there. But if they tell us to come up, it's a sign to us that God has granted us victory. If they tell us to come up, then we'll know that God has granted us victory. And sure enough, that's what happens. They come out of the rocks. The Philistines see them, and, and they're like making fun of them, right? They're like, oh, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes because they are all hiding at this point. Oh, look, they've, they've come out of their holes. They're kind of making fun of them. And they tell them, uh, 
They're like, yeah, come, come up here. Come up here and we'll uh, show you a, a thing. That's what it says. I don't know if something's lost in translation there. But it's literally, it says, come up and we'll show you a thing. Like, it sounds like they just, they're just bad. They don't know how to like, come up with something to say. They're like, yeah, come up and we want to show you something. It's cool. Come up. But they tell him to come up. So they come up. He and his armor bearer, climb. they have to rock climb to a sword fight. That's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good situation. They have to rock climb up to a sword fight. Also, Jonathan goes up first. The guy who's coming up after him is, is his armor bearer. Meaning that dude's carrying his armor up. Uh, they, they undertake this strenuous climb and then they sword fight 20 men over the course of 75 feet, right? It says something about a furrow's length, all that kind of math. I did the math for you. It's about 75 feet. That they sword fight 20 men and are victorious. And then God induces an earthquake and causes a great panic in the Philistine camp. Meanwhile, now Saul's watchmen finally see what's going on. They go, wait, who's missing? They figure out, okay, it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're the ones that are missing. And Saul doesn't immediately join the fight. Right, what does he do? He asks for Ahijah and, and the ark. He's like, bring the ark over here. And then Ahijah, let's figure out what we, should, what we should do. Should we get involved in this or not? Meanwhile, the battle's raging and they're trying to figure out what to, ha- what to do. Ahijah's not able to give him an answer. It continues, the panic continues to increase uh, where the Philistines are just killing each other. And finally, Saul goes, okay, forget it. And then he joins the fight. But at this point, they don't necessary. Because right, the fight's already won. God's already won the battle. They join. The, the Hebrews join. Now, Hebrews is a, is a derogatory term at this time. Uh, it's a derogatory way of referring to the Israelites. Um, and, and this specifically, when it says the Hebrews who are with the Philistines, essentially switch sides. Um, this is a group of, uh, of Israelites who were mercenaries who would go and fight for whoever paid them. So they were actually... Israelite mercenaries who were with the Philistines. Um, they switch sides in the middle of this battle. And then those who are hiding, they also come out and join the battle because boy, is it easy to join a battle that God's already won. Right? They just join in on a battle that God has already won, which is why this concludes Yahweh saved Israel that day. It's, it's Yahweh who saves Israel that day. Jonathan's faith and courage are the cattle, a catalyst, but ultimately it's Yahweh's victory. We'll continue here, verses 24 through 46. The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with an oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. The people were faint. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. Now, how much better if the people had eaten 
freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahialon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen, oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against Yahweh by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against Yahweh by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to Yahweh. It was the first altar that he built to Yahweh. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not, ha not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as Yahweh lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Yahweh, give, God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is in your people of Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told them, I tasted a little honey on the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. Saul said, God, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people of Saul, people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As Yahweh lives, there shall not, shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Losing God's favor and, and Saul's, uh, Samuel's support really sent Saul into a tailspin. He does not know what to do. He is all over the place. He's willing to try anything, right? He's dragging the Ark of the Covenant along with them. He's got this new priest, Ahijah. And, and so he even makes this vow that if any, uh, anybody in his army eats food before nightfall, they'll be cursed. Which what a crazy, like even Jonathan points out, like, yeah, that's a great idea, Dad. Like, let's not eat while we're fighting a war. That's a great idea. Let's have our soldiers fast while we're fighting a war. It's a terrible uh, condition to, to put on them. And it's a serious condition to put on them. They, the implication is that if anyone eats anything, they'll be executed. So they come to this forest that's literally dripping with honey. And Jonathan had not heard the oath because he was off, you know, actually winning the battle. And, and so he dips his staff in the honey and eats some of it. And it gives him rejuvenating energy. They can tell 
by the look on his face, like you must have eaten something because everyone else is just dragging because they're, you know, they haven't eaten anything. And so this ravenous hunger that is created in the people by the time they've finished pursuing the Philistines as far as they're going to, now they come upon the, the spoils of war, this, the, these animals, and they literally start taking the animals and slaughtering them and eating them raw because they're so hungry. They're just eating raw meat off of these animals alive right there in the field. Um, and, and this is a very serious charge, a really serious uh, sin that they're committing because they're eating the animals with the blood. Um, and eating, eating meat with the blood um, is a, is a, there's a law against eating meat with the blood that is um, pervasive throughout Scripture. So meaning it's first introduced after the, uh, the flood uh, with Noah. When Noah gets off the ark, God tells him, you shall not eat meat with the blood. Before that, it seems they're not eating meat at all. Um, as soon as they are eating meat, he tells them not to eat it with the blood. That's Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. Then it's upheld and expanded in Leviticus chapter 17. It's repeated by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 12 when he's reiterating all of the, the law to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And then it's upheld and applied to Gentile believers in Acts chapter 15. Um, so this is something that, that appears to remain to this day. Um, they're not supposed to eat meat with the blood. In, and this has been caused essentially by Saul's crazy vow for them to not eat food. And we see Saul's madness on full display here in verses 36 through 46. He, he wants to go after the, the Philistines by night, right? He, he finally tells them like, okay, stop eating the meat with the blood. Like, well, let's make an altar. We'll cook the meat and then you can eat. So they're, they're cooking the meat. And then he tells them, after they've ha- seemed to have like had their barbecue, he tells them, like, let's keep going, huh? You guys want to go? Like, let's go get them by night. Let's just not leave any of them. Let's, just, let's go get them. Like, he's ready to go. He wants it because they've finally eaten something, right? He's ready to go. And the people are like, yeah, sounds good. Ahijah, his new substitute priest, says, like, maybe we should ask God, Right? Maybe should we ask God whether you should, we should go or not? And Saul's like, yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, yeah, we should ask God. Like, you know how inconsistent this guy is, right? When his own son, his own son and his, and his armor bearer, they're off fighting the Philistines by themselves. Saul's like, no, we got to know for sure whether this is what God wants us to do. Like, let's figure it out. Get the ark, Ahijah, let's figure it out. Can we get, get a sign from God? Let's try it. The, try the umim, urim, and thumim. Let's try it. Come on, let's figure it out. What, what does God want us to do? Oh, forget it. Let's go. Right, and now here, he's like, let's go get him. Oh, yeah, we should ask God. Like, he just is all over the place. He's not consistent. He's, he's this religious madness going on here. So he agrees, okay, let's consult God. God doesn't give them a definitive answer. And that causes Saul to believe that there's some mysterious sin among the people that's causing them not to receive an answer. Okay. If you're Saul and you assume that the reason you're not getting an answer is that there is some sin that is causing you not to receive an answer, wouldn't you think it was the blatant violation of God's dietary law not to eat blood that had just been happening in front of everybody that that would be the problem? 
That's what he should think. He doesn't think that at all. He thinks, no, it must be that someone violated my dietary law that I put in place of not to eat anything while we're at war. So often this is our own approach to sin. We ignore the blatant rebellion that we're in against God and we think the problem must be something we don't know. There must be some secret thing that we don't know that we're doing wrong, that we've violated. That's so often how we approach these things. And it's how Saul approaches this. And so they enter in this process of divination. They use the Urim and Thummim, which is these little uh, stones that were kept inside of the ephod of uh, the priest. And it could give them an answer between two different things. And so they, they, they're going to use this to determine. They first set the, the rest of the people against Jonathan and Saul, and it falls to Jonathan and Saul. And then, it fall, and then they, they, okay, now between Jonathan and Saul, it falls to Jonathan. Which is essentially God just going, okay, if you want to know who broke your little don't eat any food law, I'll tell you who did it. It's Jonathan. <clears throat> so he confesses and, and immediately submits himself to death. He says, okay, yeah, it was me. I, I did, I ate, I ate some honey. If you want to, you can kill me now. Right, he, he's willing to, to submit himself to death. But the people don't buy it. Up until this point, they've been perfectly submissive to Saul. Notice in verses 36 and 40, they say, do whatever seems good to you. Right, the minute he says, hey, what do you want, you know, should we go after, oh yeah, do whatever seems good to you, do whatever seems good to you. They're on board with whatever Saul wants to do, but now when Saul says, okay, we got to execute Jonathan, they go, no way, dude. He's the only one of us who's actually done any fighting today. They are not on board with executing Jonathan. And they, they ransom him instead. We don't know why, how exactly they ransom him, what that specifically means. It could possibly involve some kind of animal substitute. I think more likely uh, it would have involved using the uh, valuation for uh, human life in Leviticus. In Leviticus 27 uh, it says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to Yahweh involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old should be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So this would be, the reason I think this is likely is, uh, this is a vow that, that Saul had made to, the, to God saying, my, my people should not eat any food. Any food. It's a, a special vow that he makes. And, and then this is a evaluation of persons. Uh, Jonathan is going to be the, the one that is going to die here. So they would have had to come up with 50 shekels of silver, um, which is difficult to determine uh, for, today's, uh, for today, but it would likely be around eight to $16,000 uh, that these 600 men would have had to come up with uh, among themselves to ransom the life of Jonathan. What we see here contrasted between Jonathan and Saul is steadfast faithfulness versus religious madness. Jonathan humbly and consistently puts his faith in God. He humbly and consistently puts his faith in God. He says he's willing to, to recognize that he doesn't necessarily know God's will. He recognizes the power of God and the fact that he can save no matter what the size of the army he even willingly says, yep, I, I, true, I violated this law that I didn't even know about, that I think is pretty silly, 
but you can kill me. He's willing to submit himself to all of these things. He's humble, he's consistent, and he's putting his faith in God. Saul, on the other hand, is self-righteous, inconsistent, and paranoid. He's self-righteous in that he doesn't repent when Samuel confronts him. Last week, when we looked at chapter 13, and he offers this unauthorized sacrifice, he doesn't say, no, I was wrong. I should not have done that. Like, I, I repent. He doesn't do any of that. He makes excuses, and he immediately, instead of, instead of confessing and repenting before Samuel, he just goes and finds himself a new priest who will approve of him. He's inconsistent. He sometimes seeks God, sometimes he doesn't. He's paranoid. He puts in all of these different things. He wants the Ark of the Covenant there. He wants all of these different things, these different conditions and things he's trying to to put in place to try to gain God's favor. He's just religious madness. Some of the things probably look really good, look like he really cares and really wants to be pious to God, but he doesn't actually believe, he doesn't act, he's not steadfast, he's not consistent, he's not faithful. We'll look lastly here at verses 47 through 52. When Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn Merab, the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw, saw any strong or valiant man, he attached himself him to himself. So these verses are, are what we call like a kingship summary. This is uh, the author uh, summarizing Saul's kingship, because even though his kingship isn't entirely over yet, the focus now is going to shift to his successor, uh, which we know is going to be David, but um, we're going to see that shift happen here. And so he's summarizing um, Saul's uh, kingship by talking about his enemies and the, the people that he fought against. He summarizes his children and his familial relationships um, and then he, he concludes it by, with this verse 52, where it says, when Saul, Saul saw any strong or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And, and this is really in response to the hard fighting with the Philistines that marked Saul's reign, that he drafted an army of strong and valiant men. And this comment really points both backward and forward in our story. It points back to the fact that when Israel asked for a king, Samuel warned them that a king would take the best of their young men. He warns them in in chapter 8, verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He says, whenever Saul saw, saw somebody who was strong, 
or was valiant, he would take him and draft him into his army, attach him to himself. That's exactly what Samuel had warned them would happen, and it's sure enough what happens. It's also a comment that we should remember as we look forward and consider David's service to King Saul uh, as we shift our focus to David. We'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, remember that the odds don't matter to God. The, uh, the odds don't matter to God. He can save with many or by few. It doesn't matter what the odds are if God is on our side. But we also should not presume to know God's will. And then lastly, choose steadfast faithfulness over religious madness. I'm going to pray here in just a second, and then we'll take communion together. After that, we'll sing one closing song. And then there'll be a, a prayer team over here. If you'd like prayer for anything, these folks would love to pray for you. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for these uh, examples of um, faith that we see from, from so long ago, but that are so relevant today because you are still relevant today. Father, we uh, pray that we would be um, steadfast, that we'd be faithful, that you would guide us as we seek to follow you and to know your will. Pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.